Welcome back to the podcast. Nick Finzer here. Today I'm excited to jump back into a Q&A. This is Ask Nick number 71. In this episode, we're talking about mouthpiece upgrades. We're talking about live stream concerts. Should you keep on doing them in this post-pandemic world? And uh, a really kind of sensitive topic around how do you ask for money? Maybe it's from a venue. Maybe it's from a potential student or maybe it's from a potential donor. So uh, I hope you're enjoying these episodes of the podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, if you can, leave us a review and uh, tell us what you think. What kind of episodes are your favorite? Are they the music episodes, the Q&A episodes? We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. I want to start off the day by talking about the scholarship opportunity that is afoot. Jazz Trombone Bootcamp Scholarship being offered by Con Selmer. So I play a King Trombone, and Con Selmer uh, decided that they would helps to support some young people at this event and offer a scholarship, a full tuition scholarship to be part of the uh, boot camp tuition free. You're going to have a master class level of participation, get to play for one of our guests. If you don't know, the guests are going to be Andre Hayward, Vincent Gardner, Steve Davis, Michael Davis, four great guests. We have two great TAs for the week who are up and coming stars in the making. That's DJ Rice and Jack Courtright, two of my students. And we hope that you can be a part of it. The registration is still open if you want to come, but the applications are open until Tuesday. So you only got a few more days. We got to we gotta get people there. So send in your application. You go to the, my, the link in my Instagram bio, go to my website. You can find it all over social media. It shouldn't be too difficult to find. I hope that uh, you can send stuff in, and we can't wait to welcome you to the boot camp. Uh, I'm excited also because the International Trombone Festival just announced yesterday that they are opening it up to people from uh, anywhere, everywhere uh, that want to come and attend. Because originally it was just going to be this li- a live streamed event to keep the keep it rolling for this year, but. They've announced that it is now going to be uh, an in-person event and people will be able to register. So if you want to check that out, the International Trombone Festival, that's going to be in Columbus, Georgia. And so if that is, I think about a month after my boot camps, I think July 14th, July 14th through 17th, that's going to be a lot of fun. So if you want to join us there, I'll be there. I'm hosting uh, one of the jazz nights there. I'm going to give some master classes there. I'm also playing with Jen Wharton and her group Bonegasm with uh, John Fedchok. And I'm not sure, sure who else is playing. Elliot Mason is going to be there. It's going to be a good time. So if you want to come and hang out, you can register. So if you want to come to boot camp, we would love to have you. So please uh, enter that scholarship competition. Just ent- It's a really simple form. It's totally free to enter. Just fill out why you think you'd want to come, who you are, and that you're confirm that you're able to come because it doesn't make sense to give you a scholarship if you can't actually come to camp, right? So it's June 14th through 18. Brian, have you ever been vibed for playing a large bore in a jazz setting? Um, well, sure, but I just don't care anymore. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I played a small horn for a while, and so that was never really an issue, but a good friend of mine, Javier Nero, who is now in the um, Army Blues, yeah, Army Blues, used to, at least when we were in college together, he always played on a large bore, a con, actually, right? I think it was a con with a Christian Lindbergh valve. We would vibe him sometimes. I don't know. It's all about the sound. I mean, if you can't um, manipulate your sound to fit the situation, it could be a little difficult uh, on a large bore, but if you... Uh, can manipulate your sound concept to be what the section needs, to be what the band needs, then I don't see why there's any reason why you can't play a large bore. Plenty of people play large bore instruments. How often do you clean with a brush your slide and or apply slide oil? I don't clean it out enough. I think they recommend every couple months or every month. You could do it often if you want. I get scared of screwing up my horn, so I don't uh, do it all the time. But I have a, a snake. So usually what happens is I'm like, why do I have so much spit in my horn? And I'm like, oh, it's probably gross in there. 
and then I'd clean out my horn. So maybe not the most advisable. You probably want to get on a regular schedule with that uh, to really optimize playing into a clean instrument because the, the response is usually always better after you clean it out. So anyway, not that often. But in terms of uh, slide stuff, I don't use slide oil. I use this stuff. This, What is this? Yamaha slide lubricant. I've got bottles everywhere now. Bottles at school, bottles at home. Put it on the slide and that's just whenever it needs it. Just whenever it needs it and then you spray it down with a water bottle and go from there. Alton, what's the next move for Nick Finzer? Album, book, project? But the next move? Well, there's a lot of things in the works that are almost done. I'm writing a book. I don't know when that'll be out. Working on a a book of duets that'll come out around the time of ITF. So actually, if you're watching this and you're a trombone player, you're going to be ITF. I'm kind of launching like a kind of a top secret project to record some of these duets. So if anybody wants to do that, that's going to be there, hit me up and we'll talk off of the live stream. Because like I said, it's top secret. I actually have the proof copy here. This is the proof copy of the book. It's not out yet, but I got the first, the first edition. So we'll do that. I'm doing a course on uh, Curtis Fuller solos. I'm doing um, a drone course, like a, a series of lessons uh, in the virtual studio. So a lot of those things are coming. I've got a I've got an album coming out in November. It's going to be a collection of different things. So you know, Dalton, I'm always doing something. What's up, Jackson? What is a respectful way to get businesses slash restaurants to a gig at their place and more importantly, get them to pay you? Well, you got to ask. You know. That's the, the first uh, thing that people forget to do is that they, they try to go to a place that already has, you know, people playing. And sometimes you need to just ask new people like, hey, would you want to have music at your place? We'd love to play, blah, blah, blah. And know what you're worth, you know, know what you're willing to do for and you're not willing to do for. It, it comes down to being willing to say no most of the time. Um, so if you're just like, but at the same time, like if you're just trying to get experience playing, then maybe $50 in dinner is, is worth it. But maybe, maybe it's not if you're, if you're trying to, I don't know, be more picky about what you do. I wouldn't say that there's necessarily like a yes or no, you know, especially in a place, you know, Jackson, like in Denton, there's a, a lot of students that are playing. So the ability to get a high amount of money is probably pretty low because there's a, a lot of students willing to play for a low amount of money. And this is true everywhere where there's a college of music and there's students. So you have to be mindful of what you think you're worth and what the market will bear. And if you, you know, don't want to work for what the market says, then you just have to be okay with not working and kind of just like playing. You know, I would rather pay, play for free or I would even rather pay to get a flight to get somewhere and play that I really wanted to play than um, get paid 20 bucks for a crappy gig. But I would just talk to them. You know, he's asking in a, res a respectful way and just have your rate, know what you want to get and know what you're willing to negotiate down to and then say, okay, well, I guess this maybe isn't a right fit and be willing to walk away, you know, and be willing to know like, you know, if a hundred bucks for a duo for two hours is enough or it's not, you know, would you record a live album of all new music? If you had the opportunity, where would you want to record an album like that? Uh, yeah, for sure. I would definitely do that and have done that in the past. I usually like to do that in a studio, but like I do a live record in a studio. I also did one, um, at Subculture in New York. I did a live one, it's called Here and Now Live in New York City. That's um, a live record. Yeah, but I like I like live records and, be, and I like releasing live versions of tunes because it gives like a, a counterpoint to the studio version. It gives, um, it's just like, this is what it is. Like you don't worry about it so much. It shows like all the, it gives you a chance to, you know, show the musicianship of the band and 
all that kind of stuff rather than just focusing on like polishing it up and making it perfect, you know, and gives you an opportunity to not worry about it being perfect, you know, just have play the gig, make it fun, show show what the music really is like and go from there. But I would want to go to a place that had some decent um, acoustics, someplace I could get people to, you know, I was going to do one. I know you're talking about in Denton, maybe I was going to do a concert at Echo Lab and bring people in there and uh, have them sit around and have a small audience, you know, because the audience, even a couple of members of an audience, it changes, changes things. Even on tours, I've done it. I did one in Memphis, found just found a studio, sold tickets. There's that record uh, with Chris Ziemba and I live in Memphis. That's that was the same thing. So I like doing that because it, when you record a bunch of albums, you know, you get to, it gets to be this whole thing of post-production and this and that. And it's like, I like jazz music is acoustic music and it's supposed to be, you know, a lot of it, you don't, there's not a lot that you need to do to it. So as long as it's recorded well, it sounds good and you can put it out. For me, that's more important than like doing so much post-editing to it. Although that's something I'm inter- interested to see what happens if I go down that route because uh, it's different than what I normally do. To answer the question specifically, I'd want to go somewhere that had good, pretty good acoustics. It would have a, a piano, number one, because if it has bad acoustics, then there's no way you're going to get a good recording. So it's got to be relatively uh, decent and then just kind of know that that's what it's going to sound like. From Kevin, he says, how would you approach building a private lesson studio for someone who has never taught lessons before? Um, I would give master classes for free to high schools or middle schools or elementary schools to get kids excited about the instrument, show them what's possible on the instrument and establish a good rapport with the educators. And once you've established a good rapport with the educators, you did something for them, then they'll do something for you. So uh, I would go in for free as many different schools as it took in my area until I started getting some students. Uh, this is what I did when I, when I was in undergrad. I would just go and teach so the educators knew who I was and tell them I was teaching and building my studio and they get to know you, you know, you, they get to see you teach, you offer them something and then they can offer you a referral later. So that's what I would do. And that's what I did do. How have you improved listening skills and how have you continued to enjoy listening to music on a daily basis? You know, that that's a struggle for me to listen to music on a daily basis. You're always like analyzing, you're always like ripping it apart. So sometimes I don't listen to music for like a long period of time. So I don't know if I continue to enjoy it really on a daily basis. Sometimes, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just want to listen to like books on tape, listen to books, listen to the podcasts, and then have to be like back in the in the mood. How have I improved my listening skills? This is a great thing. So what you can do is listen to a recording that you like, first of all, that's not too long, and try to go through and listen to each individual instrument. Uh, so if I'm thinking about like a jazz group, you know, we, this goes hand in hand with developing your improvisational skills and playing with other people. There's this whole thing about like people say like, oh, play with the band or interact with the band. And if you don't, if you can't hear them first, there's no way for you to really play with them. So something that I like to do is to go through and listen to records, like only listening to the drums. And then when you even say only listen to the drums, you can also be like, oh, I'm only gonna listen to the hi-hat and I'm only gonna listen to the ride cymbal. Listen to the bass. What is the bass doing? And try to keep your focus. So really what it is is a practice of focus, you know, a practice of like really tuning out everything else and listening to that one thing. And so then you can turn your attention wherever it needs to go, to the piano, to the bass, to the drums. And I started to notice a lot of different things about the touch of different piano players or like how um, things uh, react to one another. And this has got to be something, a, a track that you've listened to a lot of times and that you really enjoy listening to so that you can do it even more times, right? So you just keep on listening more and more and more. Um, and identify the different instruments, see how they're, what they're doing, how they're interacting, just like listening, just listen and focus on it. That's how you improve your listening skills. So then when I go in to a live setting, I can take that approach and I can shift my listening. Like am I listening to the piano? 
the harmony? Am I listening to the bass? Am I listening to the drum? Am I listening to the hi-hat? Am I listening to the ride cymbal? And kind of cycle through as necessary what's happening with those things so I can really kind of dig into that and figure out uh, what I'm trying to do, which I'm, what I'm trying to figure out. Do you think there's any use to jazz etudes? Yes. I mean, I think transcriptions are jazz etudes. I think that it's uh, an important part of learning jazz to learn transcriptions. Now, when you talk about jazz etudes and people want to like buy a jazz etude book, they may or may not have a place. You know, I think they have a place, especially for young and inexperienced players. I think they have a place for people that need some stuff to play. Then maybe they're not their their ability level isn't quite up to being able to play a transcription maybe or maybe, you know what i mean like maybe the range is an issue or the speed is an issue um, but in general i like to go to transcriptions over jazz etudes however i do think there's a place for jazz etudes and i and i mean i have a book of jazz etudes and uh, i like to try to have them have a purpose you know i when i came up with that book of etudes that i have they're i call them they're kind of like bach cello suite-esque jazz etudes where we're just talking about the harmony and playing through like connecting the harmony and defining the harmony as a single note player so coming up with like a concept like what are these etudes what are they for you know how are they different and what skill is going to be taught through these etudes rather than just being like a random chorus that somebody just wrote over a tune and like i said like sometimes that has its place especially for sight reading i don't generally go to them that often jazz etudes even though i have them i have my students write their own quite often in all different kinds of ways over tunes using different types of scales saying like okay well we're working on diminished so why don't you write a chorus using the diminished as many different ways as you can they have a lot more use as you composing them or your students composing them than necessarily like needing to have a bunch of jazz etudes when did you start composing arranging when did you sell your first chart I started composing and arranging when I started having a band in high school, I guess. <laughs> so I've been composing since then. So 2004. Um, when did I sell my first chart? That's a different, that's a totally separate question, I suppose. Probably after my first record came out. But that I would say that like selling charts is not like a huge part of my income stream in general. It's hard to say like, you know, there's so much jazz music out there. Somebody to say like, oh, they're going to play my charts. I don't do a lot of arranging, you know, like I do a lot more composing for myself and my own bands i've been meaning to put together a collection of lead sheets because sometimes people want to just buy one lead sheet from a tune but unfortunately like a lot of the tunes don't even exist in lead sheet format yet do you approach music and life differently now as opposed to 10 years ago i mean yes 2021 so 10 years ago was 2011 i was in the middle of my master's program at juilliard i was very naive you know I thought that um, going to Juilliard or something like that was going to like send me off on a on a rocket ship or something, you know, like I thought like I thought that that was a thing. Yeah, I thought that that was going to set me up. So, so suddenly I'm like, oh, well, now I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle and like I'm not that young, young gun or not the young whatever anymore and kind of missed out on that by being busy and doing stuff and working. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. So I think, I guess it's just like kind of life just like happens. And I didn't know quite how things were going to turn out. And so I guess, um, I guess I'm trying to make more space to just allow for things now than then. I was definitely very, very focused on my career and like and this idea of what that meant and like what I needed to do and saying yes to everything. I know like, you know, there was a point where I had to decide that I needed to sound good no matter what. And so I used to like 
put excuses about like why I didn't sound good on a certain gig or something like that. At a certain point, I had to just be like, you know what, man, I have to, I have to just go for it and I have to sound good no matter what. And um, so that was something that happened when I was touring with my own music a lot and picking up bands all over the country. That was a, a realization, you know, it's like it's in my hands. I got to just do it myself. I can't um, rely solely on other people to like give you musical inspiration and yeah just knowing that things take longer than you want them to usually and all those things so anyway it says how important is it for an artist's sound style to change over time in other words is the criticism all of that artist stuff sounds exactly the same a valid criticism i think it depends on the artist man i think it really it depends on uh if that's essential to them because i've realized even for myself like oh it's been 10 years like it's been 10 years and all the music i've been putting out it kind of all sounds the same and i kind of went oh that's interesting because i always thought i would be a person that was changing and then you realize oh well actually i'm not really changing it's kind of all the same and then you then you realize like maybe how hard it is to actually change what you hear in your head i mean i've got some ideas of maybe how i would want to change things but to actually do it like is a, is a different thing, like to get rid of all the stuff, the preconceived stuff that you have or the things you've learned and all the hard work you've put in to like be able to do certain types of things uh, or ex excel playing certain types of music or whatever to then go to like, oh, I got to change it up because I don't want to be stale, you know. I think it's both valid criticism in, re in a retrospective way where you're like, man, that person did the same thing, but it's actually kind of admirable to say like man that person really committed and said that they did the same thing I, I also don't know how realistic it is to actually change that much people that are able to and it's like that's why it's so amazing like why miles davis was able to do what he does because as you go through it you realize it's very easy to stay in your lane and it's very easy to like do the thing you're good at already you got to really push yourself pretty darn hard to like get out of your your zone so that's something that i've been thinking about recently you know, I always thought like having that continuity of like band and like music would be a good thing where now I'm like, hmm, it might actually, maybe it's not as good of a thing as I thought it was and maybe it's boring, but you kind of always have to kind of scratch your own itch. So if it's not interesting to you to change, then don't change. But if it is if it is interesting to you to change, then you should change. Hey, do you th think that live stream concerts will be going anywhere now that concert at venues have been on a decline? even with everything opening up again. Um, I think that there's a willingness to, for live stream concerts to become a part of the discussion. I think it's a, there's a willingness of uh, knowing that it's a good way to make content, a good way to take your music and stretch it over a longer period of time in terms of being, having new things to share. I think um, live streaming is a great way to be able to connect with people all over the world. And there's a pretty good chance that even no matter where you play, like that there's people that want to hear your concert that aren't there. So I think that having a live streaming strategy is an important one going forward. And I think is one that even though we want to play live and go touring and all of these things, and I think, there, of course, those things will still happen. But I think that there is still the chance to connect with your audience, especially the ones that don't live where you live. And I think that hopefully artists will realize that this is a separate opportunity. <laughs> Touring is one opportunity. Live streaming is a different opportunity, but it's an opportunity nonetheless. Um, so I think it's important to put it into your overall strategy um, as, a, as a musician, as an educator, whatever. I, think, I don't think it's going anywhere.
even though things are opening up again. I don't think it's going to disappear. I think it's going to change. I think there's an oversaturation right now. It's just a chance to connect with people and, you know, people will realize that they can follow individual artists and there can be like shows and I think it'll stick around. I don't think it's going anywhere. And with the Olympics coming up, gymnastics teams, especially one athlete to compete in beam, vault, floor, bars, and rings. What would be the five distinct trombone Olympic events and who would you designate for each one? Oh man, this sounds like we should do like a studio wide. Uh, this is from Jackson, one of our students at UNT. Sounds like we should we should probably do like a studio wide uh, poll here. I think I don't think I can do this one on my own. I mean, if it's jazz, I guess it's like you got to play like some hard tune or there's got to be like hard changes, fast tempos, ballads, sight reading. I don't know, playing high notes. I guess <laughs> high neck. I play. A box 16 with a standard six and a half mouthpiece would like to upgrade the mouthpiece. Which mouthpiece makes best fit in your opinion? You know, the thing is, Avi, I wish I could tell you exactly what to go and play, but every single person's body is different. And what feels good to me and my sound concept is not going to match up with yours. And um, so for me to just give you a blanket statement of like what's going to fit, you have to think about what kind of sound you want and work backwards from there. And then also figure out what works with your body, your teeth, your mouth. In terms of upgrading the mouthpiece, there's not really an upgrade. There's just different stuff. I like my mouthpiece, but I don't know that, I don't think it would be a great fit on that horn. Maybe it is, but I play Marcinkowitz 6E-S. That's the one that I play and I've played for the last 10 years. But if it doesn't match your sound concept, it's not gonna be good. So you gotta know what you're shooting for before we can give you any equipment advice. And I'm also not a huge equipment person, you know, like I don't know the ins and outs of what's gonna change if I change the shape of the, like the Bach crook versus the King crook on the slide. Like one is more a box and one is more a U and they do different things and I don't really know what it is, but I do know it's different. You know, you got to try stuff out. I mean, it really, it really depends. Do you want something heavy? Do you want something light? The Marcinkowitz is light. Greg Black is super heavy. You just got to play stuff. So my best suggestion is to go to somewhere where there's a trade show and you can try a whole bunch of stuff. You know, Dennis Wick has tons of mouthpieces. There's the stuff like the Doug Elliott mouthpieces, which are all interchangeable and you can manipulate all the different pieces. I'm listening to a new album a day. Could you please recommend one? Could be anything. Jalen Baker, This Is Me, This Is Us. That's the new album that's out today from Outside in Music, a great young vibes player. He's been mentored by Ulysses Owens Jr., another one of the Outside in Music artists, so you can check that out. That's where I'll send you today. Do you think an artist ever settles into a style improvisationally or are they always evolving? For example, JJ has style changed in the 40s, 50s, I mean, he changed all the way till the 80s too. I mean, there's like the core. And I think I, I think that's up to the artist, man. Like it's up to you to like push yourself as an artist to go into your next phase or to have like different things, different phases, different ideas. So it's up to the artist. Not everybody does. Some people do, but not everybody does. And I think even I, I think everyone does evolve. But uh, I think as you become older, you become more uh, thoughtful about your note choices and tempos. And do you ever get called for gigs that require doubling? In those cases. Do the people calling you know that you don't consider yourself a doubler? Do you take those gigs? Why or why not? Well, I never would have like said that out loud at a certain time in my life, you know, like when I was just freelancing in New York and only doing that, I wouldn't have broadcast the fact that I don't consider myself a doubler. I would have said yes and figured it out. That's what I've always done. Say yes, figure it out. Does that mean getting a tuba and, and practicing the crap out of it for a couple of weeks to get something together, then that's what I would do. Same with bass trombone. If it was really the case that I 
couldn't do it, then I would say no. But for most nine out of 10 situations, I would imagine that there's some way somehow for me to grow out of that situation. If somebody said, I need you to play an alto trombone improvised solo tomorrow, I would say no, because I don't play alto trombone. I, I definitely don't improvise on alto trombone. Or if somebody called me and said, like, oh, we want you to like play on this record, but we want you to play jazz euphonium. I'd be like, man, I don't play valves that well. I would probably send you somewhere else. Can I play valves? Yes, but can I clearly express like my musical point of view? No. <laughs> All right, Jack is taking as the TA for our studio has took it upon himself to clarify the events for the trombone Olympics. Okay, he says the trombone Olympic categories are blues, rhythm changes, ballad, train changes, and free. Blues, Wycliffe Gordon, rhythm changes, ballad. Who plays a really good ballad? This is hard. I think I'm going to leave people out and it's going to be offensive. Uh, train changes, Steve Davis, but I'd also like Steve Davis on the ballad. So I'm going to have to say Steve Davis ballad. I'll say Deese on the train changes and Keberly for free because he's really good at that. Brian asks, what scale do you think lays best on trombone? Actually, the B major scale, I think, lays the best on trombone. B major. Fight me. No, but check it out. If you get rid of the idea that first position is home base and you focus on the fact of just playing in, in, a, in a way that um, is close together or keeps the slide moving, like B major, you don't have to move that much to actually play B major. Especially in the second octave, it's really easy. So somebody probably will disagree with me, but I actually think B major lays super well on the trombone. Except if you're trying to play below that low B, of course. What kind of stuff do you or have you and Lucas Pino talked about, especially regarding philosophy? I don't know. We have a similar kind of view of harmony and how harmony works and that it's all about voice leading. Not so much about chord names or scales, more about vo it's all about the way the voices move and you can create interesting harmonies that way but a lot of people have done that not just him or i but um, i don't know we have a lot of things in common and we're also very 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 different people which is good he likes to talk about a lot um just for perspective not in a negative way how like nothing really matters you know we're just thinking you know like humankind is small and like earth is small and like he's got a whole thing about space and all of that stuff which is true and i definitely get caught up in like the stuff too much the day-to-day -day stuff you know for sure I do. Okay, same trombone, Olympics categories, but with dead players, no repeats. Blues, Lawrence Brown on the blues. Ballad, Curtis Fuller, 100%. Uh, rhythm changes, we'll say, I'll say JJ on the rhythm changes. Train changes, we'll switch, I'll switch. I'll switch because I didn't think this all the way through. It would be interesting to hear JJ play train changes, I think. Rhythm changes, we'll switch and we'll say... We'll put JJ on um, train changes and then rhythm changes would be, um, let's say Benny Green. I love me some Benny Green. And then free, it's got to be Albert Mankelsdorf, right? He was all over the place. I just discovered this, that record with him and Jaco Pistorius. Like, I guess it's a couple months ago that I discovered this now, but I never heard it before. It's him and Jaco and I th maybe Billy Cobham on drums. I forget who's playing drums, but it's like crazy and free and. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Appreciate everybody being here. Thanks for tuning in. Again, there's going to be no live stream for a couple of weeks here. Um, we'll be back at the end of June. The week after that is boot camp. And boot camp is registration still open. And you can uh, sign up at my website. And I hope to see you there. So that's happening. Con Selmer Scholarship is open now. If you want to apply for the scholarship, we'd love to have you. Just uh, fill out the free application. And we'll choose those people next week on Wednesday. 
next Wednesday we will announce the winners and then we will move ahead with camp from the 14th to the 18th. So I'm really glad to spend my Friday afternoon with all of you. I'll catch you all soon. Thanks for tuning in as always and we will catch you next.